What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I'm in Sunset Park, West Brooklyn, on an unusually warm day, looking at the bottom of Manhattan from across the water. It's about 18 degrees Celsius, mid-60s Fahrenheit. I'm not sure why Fahrenheit still exists in America. Please do something about it. Also, most much of the world, things like miles and feet and inches. On this little vacation, this little holiday I took recently, there was a sign, a lot of people from the south were on this island and uh, there was a sign that, I don't know, you could take like three-fifths of liquor into America, back into like the mainland. And I'm like, what's that even mean? This is like such old-timey stuff. Come on, sort it out. Sort out the numbers, yo. I'm going to talk about creative briefs and uh, just taking better care of strategists briefly today and then I'll get into, get into some questions. I think I've got like one more day left on finishing this book. I've been promising it for a while. I did treat myself for the first time to an iPad and I bought Procreate, which is, you know, it's well, an Apple pencil. And it was, so I'm going to try to do my drawings uh, on the iPad. I spent a lot of yesterday just trying to play with it and get a feel for it because it does, it does feel different. But some of the work I see that people are making on, uh, on iPads is pretty incredible. I've got a lot to learn to get to anything like that, that's for sure. Uh, so yeah, aim is to lock it away in the next week, send it off to print. I'll get proofs, they'll get sent over to me. Should have the book around April, got to work out e-commerce, logistics, shipping, fulfillment. Um, aiming, well, I'm going to print two and a half thousand books. I'm hoping to sell them all this year. That's my aim, fingers crossed. So I've got to work out a little campaign for that. Not sure if I'm going to sell it uh, as, as like an e-book or or on Amazon at all at this point. I'm definitely not going to sell it as a PDF. I kind of want it to exist the way I want it to exist. And fortunately in 2020 we get to make these decisions for ourselves. And you know, I keep a little eye on, on friends who've been in the DTC space, direct-to-consumer space for a while. And a lot of them are either avoid Amazon, their products are different, but they avoid it because they think they're just going to get knocked off in China immediately. Uh, but also they don't get the data, they don't know who's buying their products. So you might get access to the marketplace and be able to earn money and that's amazing. But the point is that there are more ways of doing this now than ever. And I don't know, look, if I can sell a couple of thousand, a couple thousand books in a year or two uh, and talk to most people who've bought it, it's kind of amazing to me. So it's probably what I'm going to do. All right, creative briefs, let's see what comes out. There must be so many briefs getting written these days. So, a few points. You've got to work out the point of a creative brief. We all know the cliches that the main audience of a creative brief is the creative team or the creative department. If you work in a situation where somebody writes a creative brief and then it goes to some combination of copywriters and art directors and designers and... Uh, technologists. So they're the main audience for the brief. The second is I think it's useful to see the writing of any strategy document as some form of creative practice. I'd, I wouldn't suggest you say that out loud to people. They might not know what you mean. They might think you're pretentious. But I think you can find a sense of sanity in the idea that everything you do, you could put a bit of your own little creative flair into it. You don't have to obey all the rules. And that what you're trying to do in life is to get good at stuff. 
And so that means that you can write any document in any voice that you want. It could be in any tone that you want. It could be strange. It could be hilarious. It could be serious. It could be buttoned up. It could be satirical. It could be lightly comedic. It could be a haiku. It could be without words. You could just, yes, use animated GIFs or paintings or whatever you want to do or not use a presentation to present. Draw stuff on a wall, overhead projector, whatever you want to do. There's an energy in you staying electric. I do see confusion around brief templates and what to use. Obviously, when people take over strategy teams, it's enticing to want to reinvent the creative brief template. You might need several of them and to have some kind of triage system so that a brief for an email or a banner ad campaign, for example, doesn't use the brief to get to a campaign idea because hopefully there is a campaign idea that you're using. So you've got to work out the types of briefs that you need, keep them brief as well. And then I think when you get feedback, that's a difficult thing. Often people ask, do you show the creative brief to the client or not? You know, if I've got a relationship with a client, I'm like, here's what we're briefing. If you want to see it, cool. But here's what, here's what we're doing based on the discussions. And you know the discussions because we've been talking and we have a close-ish relationship. It's not just you know, formal meeting to formal meeting. And I think that stuff really gets in the way of good creative work. Marketing briefs, not really sure how many good marketing briefs exist in the world. Shout out to my marketing friends. But most of the marketing briefs I see are copy and paste from the last one, but add another five pages. So you get these 10, 15, 20 page marketing briefs. They're often shared through something like, a, like through Google Docs. Uh, they're written in Google Docs and then people are allowed to comment on them. And there are no, there's no guidance about what to comment on. Uh, you know, so for example, it could be, I'm going to share this with my 10-person marketing team. Just put one, you're allowed to spend one comment. Just tell me one thing that would make this better. And so you sometimes see these 10, 15, 20-page briefs where you've got 20 people vying for each other's attention or for the boss's attention just by dropping random comments and stuff that will not affect the work at all. A lot of marketing briefs sound more like technical product specification brochure things. No one's using that. Think of the audience. That's what marketing is supposed to do. The audience of the marketing brief is, is at least threefold. Yes, there's the marketing team. The marketing brief is usually written after resources, budgets have been signed off, but it might actually open internal, like within the business itself, uh, resources and you know, money, time, etc. people. And then there's the agency or the series of agencies that work on the, on the, on the project. And if you're a marketer and you're not sure what to do, but you think you went to college, so you're supposed to, supposed to know what you need to do, I'll tell you two things. One is a lot of people don't know what they're doing. It's okay to ask people. Talk to people, what do, you, what do you really need to see in here? And a more specific, a better question might be, what's the least you need to see in here? What's the most useful stuff to see in here? What are three of the most useful things to see in my marketing brief, or five? And that should lead to better communication, better work, quicker work, better trust, and so on and so forth. What else? Uh, there's a couple of things that I like to do. So, and I've, uh, I've sort of, I can repeat myself a little bit when I get into a topic like this. So, I write these strategy stories. They're one page. They're like a 
one page case study before the creative brief's been written and before the works happens. I used to call them pre-briefs. Uh, this week, for example, I had a research debrief about 10 days ago for a project and I don't usually put a lot of implications in the research debrief. I like, I like that to be separate. And I like people to just be able to stew, to marinate on what's coming through in the research interviews, tens of interviews. Uh, the back of that, uh, of the debrief, I had about 10 different strategy directions that we could take. And I, I just put them there, tens a lot, but I like to use them as stimulus. And sometimes my head's lost, well not lost, but it's, there's a lot of words in my head from all the interviews. And so when I'm writing these, you know, little like one sentence potential strategies, uh, I, I don't overthink them. I'm like, I think there's something here. I think there's something there. What are you, what are you feeling? because I need some time to decompress from tens and tens of interviews. We then chose three directions from these ten that were shared on a single piece of paper, typed, and then I actually ended up writing about a page of, about the problem that we, we believe through the research that this, comp this brand is facing. Uh, I usually don't write a page on the problem, but I wanted to use it just to see what language would come out and in case we want to use any of that language in future documents. And then there were three strategy directions three different strategies and between the problem page and the three strategies there's probably I reckon you know four to eight hours of just mulling it over over a weekend and a walk or two and then I'm gonna say about six to eight hours of writing I don't edit them too much though you know unless something's really not making sense uh, I will switch words out if I just, sometimes I just let some jargon drop in or some lazy language drop in and I'll, I'll try to tighten them up so that they're worth reading. But I just give you the time, uh, examples of time so you have a sense of, I don't know, how someone else works. I don't know if you talk to many other people about how long, how long does a brief take to write or how long do you, how do you work? What artifacts do you create? Do you use pens, paper, do you hand draw stuff? Another thing I'll often do, I do quite a lot of mind mapping as well and work a lot with pencils, oh, usually yeah, pencils or pens, uh, pieces of paper and I jam a lot, of, a lot of words on a piece of paper, I write small. Uh, and also another thing I'll do is I'll take a theme and just try to write, let's say I've done an, a little bit of research, hopefully spoken to people, looked at consumer reviews, spoken to people internally, I've got some kind of, you know, got, got some numbers to play with. And then I'll pick a theme and I'll try to write, you know, a page of sentences that are not necessarily connected. But if you read them out, they might sound uh, like, like a poem, a bit nonsensical, but a poem. Uh, and there's one that I'm thinking through now that I can talk about because it's actually for another podcast called Son of a Pitch with Vincent Max. And I hope you don't mind me mentioning this. I've got three or four directions that are in my mind right now. Uh, it's a really, it's a really cool, lively, well edited, and well produced podcast from from Australia. And part of what they do is they give people a brief and spend you know ten, twenty minutes going through the person's response. And they've given me dram bui, which is a it's a Scottish drink. I, I'm not that familiar with it. I was going to buy it last night, but a bottle is like fifty five US, and a half bottle is like twenty nine US. I'm like, oh come on. 
getting some Max. Hook me up. I don't, wanna, I don't, don't like spending that much money on like liquor. A bit cheap. Uh, but apparently, not a lot of young people drink it. And just from thinking about that and being like visiting a couple of liquor stores and seeing where it's placed, <laughs> if it's placed anywhere in the store, and how the, the salespeople talk about it, I started to imagine. And the brief they've given me, it's hypothetical, is to get younger people to drink it. Drink of choice for young people. I think drink of choice for young people for a bottle that's $55 is difficult. So I'll probably argue with the brief a little bit. Uh, but immediately this image came to mind and it, it sort of took me back to university, to college, where, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to go to university or college, 18, 19, 20, you might know some people from high school that you're still in contact with. You know some people from your university and college days. You hang out a little bit. Then people move around. They get jobs. And then you see each other four or five years later, 24, 25. And there are people at that age who seem middle age. You know, the way they, they dress really seriously. They take themselves seriously. They don't take care of themselves. And you're like, I remember <laughs> a few people. I'm like, damn, you're like a 45-year-old, says the guy who's coming up to 45 who dresses like a teenager and still shops in the youth men section of TJ Maxx looking for specials. Um, I haven't found anything good in TJ Maxx for a while, by the way. <clears throat> have to go back there. And so anyway, this person came to mind and I thought, like, there's got to be a fun direction that would not sell much more drink, but a fun direction of positioning Drambuie for people who are too old, too young. You know, people who act old, but they're still young. And you can have fun with it. So the point is, with the creative, with uh, the thing I would do before a creative brief is I would take the, I'd probably take that language, too old, too young, and I would just write sentences. Uh, before I came out, I just jumped onto Wikipedia to find out a little bit more of, about the background of the company. And apologies, apologies to anyone in Scotland who's deeply familiar with this company that I'm, I'm not familiar with. Uh, but apparently there's like a, there was a 26-year-old Prince got into some battle, had to flee, got rescued by the McKinnon clan, and then he gave them the recipe for Drambuie. That's a part of the mythology. I don't know if it's serious or a bit of fun. But I was like, that guy was 26 and he's a prince and he's in battles. He was too old, too young. You know, so whatever I was just babbling out there, I would work out how to say it in a sentence. And then I would look around at competition, what else is going on in these people's lives, and just try to assemble, you know, 16 sentences, 16 phrases that riff on too old, too young. And hopefully something would come out of it. And if it doesn't, I would pause, but if, it linger, if that thought lingers with me, I'll revisit. And if, if I pause and nothing more comes, either through a walk or through, the right, through trying to write again, I'll move on, move on to the next direction. I've got, I'm sitting on four or five directions that just came from, you know, 10 minutes thinking about it. All right, a um, couple of things uh, about strategy being new to an agency. This has been on my mind, it's always on my mind. Uh, look, it's really difficult. If you're wanting to do strategy work and you're the only person in your agency who does strategy work, it's, it's really difficult unless you have the advocacy of the entire agency. I hear a lot of stories about strategists essentially being hung out to dry. People don't get them. They think they slow things down. They think they confuse them. And those things might be true, by the way. 
so we need to take responsibility for ourselves uh, when we are like that. But also it's, it's difficult when you feel excluded, uh, when you just get brought in to win a pitch, when that doesn't lead to money being put into the, well, to yourself or to the strategy group. Um, and to yourself, I don't mean that you're literally getting a bonus or earning more money, but that you're getting put on a scope, for example. When you just brought in when a client's about to leave, well, oh, let's bring the strategy people in to run a workshop, and but, oh, yeah, no one's paying for it. There's a lot of gaslighting out there that, that's going on, and I think if you feel that way, just know you're not alone. Like, I could probably fill a room with people I've spoken to about this in the past year alone. I don't want to be pessimistic about this stuff because sometimes you've just got you know, the best intentions and maybe the company you're joining has got good intentions, whether you're their first strategist as a junior strategist or as a head of strategy, a head of planning. Sometimes it just doesn't work out, but I do think that companies and leadership of existing, existing leadership of companies can um, take way more responsibility for trying to understand what on earth they're hiring. Don't do it because you think it's cool and because you keep being in rooms with other people who, or other companies who have strategists and you want one to match their strategist. Don't do that. Do it mind, like with intention. Try to understand what it's about. Talk to people in the industry. Work out how to make money from it. That's a huge issue that gets in the way. You bring in a strategist and your client doesn't want it. They just want you to make your videos and shut up. And why is this strategist making things more difficult? I don't want to pay for it. A year later, the strategist bounces. This happens in big places too. It's not easy. Uh, now, if you're a new person, if you're new to a company and you make it work, it's awesome. It's just that there are a lot of people who think that they're um, abnormal because it's not working out for them. So I just wanted to say that. The thing that I really do advocate for is trying to make strategy default. Make it default in your systems, in your documentation, in your scopes. You might have a triage system where triage tree three, three types of projects. One is just bang it out type of stuff. Maybe the strategist has you know one percent of time. Maybe there's five percent of time. And then on uh, projects where there's a new campaign idea, and this is uh, before you even scope detailed research work. Maybe that's ten percent of time. I don't know. Back in the day, oh, well, there are still people who were like one hundred percent on one client. I, look, I, I hope that works out for you. I don't, mm, I don't know. Like, if you've got variety and you're making stuff, it's, that's great. And you're on one client. I think it's useful to have a variety of clients because you learn different mentalities, different cultures, different approaches to business. You get to try stuff. But the point is to make sure that you've got like project flow where the work you're doing is somehow connecting to something ending up in public. Sometimes smaller markets are better for that. Because if you if you're just banging you know if you're working on strategy and it's more like of a bureaucracy or bureaucratic role and one or two things come out every now and then you're not really gonna have a portfolio but it's not just about that I don't mean that from a vain or vanity point of view but you're not you're not building that muscle you're building kind of more of a political muscle or a put up with it muscle Yeah, let me move on. Okay, so I've got some questions here. I'm so surprised at how warm it is. All right. So I asked for questions on Instagram, through an Instagram story. I think I've got about 10 here. Uh, Joutsi, why did you become a strategist? So 
I was in agencies around 19 doing user well, being, I was a producer, but we did user experience, information architecture, we managed the accounts, managed the teams. Weren't really I didn't know any digital strategists at that point. This is in the 1990s. Don't know how many there actually were in Australia. And then uh, I became a, an account planner when I was 28. We had our first child around then and I was a bit burnt out. Uh, just finished doing my magazine as well. So I was from 19 to 28. I'd say three quarters, two thirds to three quarters of the time I also either full-time or part-time worked in the industry, but around that I was doing a magazine, I was writing for music magazines, I was doing events, distributing music. I didn't sleep a lot, I just burnt out all the time, got married at 25. Uh, and then around 28, I, just, I was like, you know what, I'm burning out and I just want to freelance. It's kind of early days, relatively speaking, early days of, uh, of that freelance, that agency freelance life. And the market was good, and I ended up at, uh, at Leo Burnett in Sydney. And you know, I was I was freelancing as a producer, but we did the strategy back then. You know, so they talked to me about a role. Another company called BMF talked to me about a role. Um, it's pretty fortunate to have those opportunities. They're both very good agencies in Sydney, and the only roles I wanted was a, like a full-time strategy role. I'd, was kind of new to the idea of it, uh, and just why? Why I liked I like to think I like to work things out. You know, I, I don't. That's kind of what it was about. I like try, trying to understand things, interviewing people, uh, and it can be a good career. It's not an easy career. It can be a good career, and it it can pay well. Like it definitely pays better than writing columns for music magazines for thirty dollars a week. And I, and I think when you, you get a kick out of seeing your work out in public, I got a big kick out of making, helping to make websites. Uh, and they weren't marketing websites, or it was maybe half half marketing websites in my twenties, through to like, I did information architecture for Rabobank for their website. It's a big Dutch bank. Um, for Audi, scoped three hundred page functional specification for an online training platform to teach mechanics or to train mechanics, you know, I love that kind of stuff. Hello Figgy, how did you grow your strategy knowledge when you first started out? Yeah, it's funny, I, I think, I've definitely had phases where I was a bit removed from the industry, I didn't want to write about it or think about it too much outside of work. But I really think I had a, a good run in a few agencies in Sydney where there was just an assumption, there, was, there were high expectations. Everybody came to work to just get on with it and to do good work and not get lost in meetings, but you know, all the creative teams wanted to get to Cannes and at a very young age a lot of them did and consistently did. And so when you ask, you know, how did you grow your strategy knowledge when you first started out, uh, and so let me say the starting point of a full-time strategy role was 28. Before then, I was I was teaching, I was self-teaching. You know, there was a, there were a lot of really interesting blogs at that point talking about uh, you know search engine optimization. It was a bit of a wild west back then. So I would look at that. I would I was making a magazine. I would test things. I've always written, or yeah, pretty much always written on the internet. I would I would test things. I would I would learn through doing. The APG awards were interesting to read. Uh, I mean, there's so much more stuff to read now. I remember 
having a couple of trips overseas in my 20s and going to bookstores and there weren't really many books that I could find that were about strategy. I know there's some around um, and I've read some of the classics, but there wasn't that much back then. We just did it. Uh, but I think the thing that helped me in those years was just being in a couple of places that were built to only do good work and they didn't exist. They didn't want to do bad work and they would kick it out. So I think that is even more important than, you know, how did you grow your strategy knowledge? Um, you know, and I, I tend to understand strategy largely through writing and through the, the skills of writing. Then you can add research and all these other, and, and various other things, data and analytics, whatever you're interested in around it. But I understand it through creativity and writing. That's how I approach it. But I didn't, I, I didn't feel as strong about that, those ideas until recently because I feel like we're often shooed away from thinking of, of ourselves as creative people when you're doing strategy work, and I, d I don't think that's helpful. Uh, Lere Vatimo, Lere Vatimo, can anyone be a strategist? Just, oh, and then you put a non, sorry. I don't know what to do. I don't, it's okay, you can ask that question, it's totally cool, right? Can anyone be a strategist? I th yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, you've got strategists in life and then strategists in, in, in work. Uh, I mean, you're going to have some people who are very good at it, but can anyone work out how to solve a problem through some kind of research and insight <laughs> to get to an idea with some coaching? Yeah. I think so. Gregor's 96, how can you tell how good you are at something without comparing yourself to other people? Hmm. It's one of those Zen questions, although Zen questions wouldn't involve comparison. They would talk about non-comparison. I don't know. I, I guess if you can, you know, the conventional answer to that would be to compare yourself to yesterday or last year. And then it depends what you're trying to compare yourself to. I feel like, for example, I, f I feel like a better writer now than 10 years ago. When I read my stuff now, I'm like, okay, it seems mostly coherent. Back then, I'm like, yeah, mostly coherent. In the moment, I didn't think of myself as a writer, even though I was writing a magazine and writing a lot of stuff. So I guess you're comparing yourself to yesterday or to last year, and it depends what you're trying to, to work out. And then it's like, does it even matter? Your brain's going to go there anyway. Uh, Landero Jao. Oh, you didn't even give me a question. You said you want to give me a question, but you got to think about it. Well, think about it and give me a question. Sheldon LT. How important or accurate is self-feedback in the strategic process? I mean, it's, I think it's important. And but I don't know what you mean by self-feedback real. I, I, I kind of know. I don't like the word feedback. You know, I joke about it a lot. I don't like it. You know, in production, they talk about notes. Do you have any notes? And in dancing, they talk about notes. Do you have any notes? Not feedback. Feedback just sounds really, uh, it's too much hierarchy in that word for me. I don't like it. In, in, in yoga, there are adjustments. Do you need an adjustment? I will think quite often about, okay, the last project I did or the last uh, event that I did, what worked, what didn't work, and I try to operate from there more than from what I hear from other people. 
So I think that's a useful form of self-feedback. Largely intuitive. I guess if you're publishing stuff on the internet, you can see numbers. I'm not that strategic with what I do on the internet. You know, sometimes I see a certain topic or format work and I'll play with it a bit more, but I'm not as buttoned up as I could be, but it's okay. You know, chess masters apparently have, their brains are a little bit different because part of the, part of playing chess is that you play your game and then you study it. You work out where you made mistakes because the huge part of chess is, or the main, maybe the main part of chess is about not making mistakes. And I think it was in the book, The Brain That Changes, The Brain That Changes Itself, I read that years ago, uh, that their brains are a little bit different because of that. So I think it's, I think it's important, but also what is more important is to then do something, act. Don't get stuck in it. Mega fantastic, the value of talking to yourself. I wish I could quote the science on this, but apparently it's very useful. The, like talking to yourself is very useful. So uh, I don't know if this is correct, but I, I was watching something the other day that talked about how long walks, it didn't talk about how <laughs> talking to yourself on long walks, but it talks, uh, talked about how long walks turn on your parasympathetic, they're the right, is that the right word, system? So your you know, re relaxation system so that's important value of talking I've heard about the value of talking to yourself in the third person the way that some sports people do can be quite good from a reinforcement of brain I and I think that's neuro I think it's neuroscience in the way that I think gratitude and being thankful and you can be thankful to yourself through writing it down or through talking out loud I think that changes the brain just a little bit based on the neuroscience that I'm familiar with so I think the value of talking to yourself is good and having some phrases that you can use back to any negative self-talk. Even, even if your aim there is just to do it, to, have, to be able to talk back to negative self-talk more often than not, or more often than you used to. I don't think there's like pure happiness and pure balance, etc. Uh, so yeah, talking to yourself is important. Uh, Elise Goodman, how closely do you like to relate your strategy work to your personal life? I don't know. I mean, I, everything's quite combined for me right now. Uh, I don't know if I sound coherent on these things or when I write necessarily for other people, but I, I try to use a lot of that stuff in my personal life. It's just that, you know, I do share a personal life with other people with whom I live, so it's not as pure as, uh, uh, you know, I could, I could write. I've got, here's a problem to solve in this particular part of the world or part of my life, and here's how I would do it. And then, you know, the thing is that there are other people to work around and, well, that you could try to work into the strategy. So, I, yeah, how closely? I don't know. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty close. It's all kind of connected. When I work with clients, I'm, you know, it's, uh, I'm, it's not that I'm letting it all hang out. It's just I don't want to. I, I felt repressed for so long in different parts of my life, and and yeah, in working in New York agencies, and now I'm fortunate enough to get hired either for events training or for strategy work by people who might be listening right now who who, who don't want to pretend themselves. And so I don't. Uh, it's not that I come in. I'm like, here's all my baggage, or here's everything that I've ever thought, but. I don't hold it back that much anymore. Life's too short. 
Anushi89. A writer's block for someone who hates to work against timelines. Yeah, look, I don't really find I personally have writer's block anymore, but I've, I've felt it, and it's usually because I might have spent, I might not be taking care of myself. I might re resent something. I'm, my, my emotions might be negative and in just in a place that aren't, that's not, place that's not useful. I might have dropped too many of my routines as well. And I'm not great at routine in some respects, but I know that say, if, if, if what I'm doing right now, I often do these on Saturday and I'll often do it while, I wait, while I'm dropping or having dropped someone off at soccer or having been to a soccer game. It's part of my routine. And if I can do that more often than not, I feel good, I feel accomplished and I enjoy it. And the same for writing. I tend to like to write more in the mornings. I don't write a lot at night when I, in my 20s and 30s I was up till crazy hours writing and I don't know if any of it was any good to be honest but now I like to do it in the mornings and I try to keep that routine more often than not uh, whether it's books whether it's uh, briefs doing research etc um, sometimes you just got to give yourself a break as well go watch a movie read, read a book uh, yeah, I don't know. A writer's block for someone who hates to work against timelines. So when I put these questions out, I'm like, ask me a question or give me a prompt as a gift to me. Uh, you know, the other thing is to try to tap into to a deeper emotion. You know, think about what makes you angry and just write about it. Practice stream of consciousness writing. Do it on a train. You know, when I used to commute from the Upper West Side down to Brooklyn, I had a, I had a phase for a few months where I would just uh, write, write on pieces of paper the whole way there. Sometimes I would meditate on the train as well. It's not uncommon in New York, actually, despite, you know, despite all the crowds. Um, I think they're most of the questions from Instagram that answered the question directly. I'll just refresh it. I know. Oh, here we go. Uh, Errant Diner, how do you know which of your thoughts slash values are truly yours? I've got no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I think the ones that you continually, continually return to. It's not even that they, they're yours or truly yours, it's that they're yours to work with. Like it's not that you own them, it's that you have to work with them. And so there are words and ideas and phrases that linger in me that I put to work for myself. And, you know, I'm building a life around them. So there's that. If you're talking about doing strategy work, so that whole Drambuie thing, like I don't know if someone else has done a campaign around too old, too young or something like that. And that might not even be the language that I end up, end up with. Um, I'll Google it, <laughs> right? I'll Google it. And then if you find it, if you find that what you're coming up with is an original, can you tweak it? Does it matter? I don't know. The, the, the game for a lot of this stuff is not that something's necessarily truly yours as in you own it to the exclusion of other people I, I think truly yours though how I'd understand it is that you've ooh, big word you've embodied it you know it's it's part of your operating system so stream of consciousness stream, what what word was that uh, stream of consciousness stream of consciousness pod talk oh my gosh stream of consciousness podcasts writing books doing baby strategy drawings it's not that any of those thoughts are truly mine, as in no one else owns them, but I've embodied them, I do them, I need to do them, I enjoy doing them. 
So that's a bit of a non-answer to your question. Sorry about that. I hope it's useful. Philippe Cabrel asks, when do we stop doing stuff how we're told? What triggers the new way of thinking? Uh, I don't know. That could be innate. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. So look, crisis. Health crisis, you're all of a sudden like, yep, how am I going to, I've got a few days, a few years to live. What am I going to do about it? You lose a, lo you lose a loved one. Um, you get sick. Someone else gets sick. And all of a sudden that triggers a new way of thinking, a new way of being. Maybe as people hit certain decades, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the big numbers can scare some people into thinking, have I hit all the milestones I was supposed to hit? Oh, hang on. Do those milestones even matter? What if they don't even matter? Oh my gosh, who am I? So that can trigger change. Learning, exposing yourself to research, to, be, to art can trigger change. Travel, seeing how other people live, writing, listening to yourself. And then I do think for a lot of people, especially people who are more immediately artistically rebellious, it might be innate, might have always been, been like that. Um, I'm a little bit cynical. I, I, I did okay at school, but like on my report cards, I remember I got told, one teacher said he's got, a, he's got like rough edges that need rounding off. I mean, that person doesn't understand humans. <laughs> and my rough edges is just that I don't tolerate What don't I tolerate? Lack of compassion, unthinking, and it's not stupidity, it's mean stupidity. You know, if I don't, I don't, yeah, it's like if you're purposefully ignorant in a way where you try to get things over other people, I don't like that. And I don't like bullying. Anyway, so maybe some of these things are innate. Uh, someone, else, someone else just anonymously wanted to shout out the Susan Cain book, Quiet. I know a lot of you would have read that. I've not. I'm familiar with some of the ideas. Uh, and in this book, Susan Cain, she's got a TED Talk too, right? She talks about introverts and extroverts and how both can be socially active and talkative. It just depends to what extent and regarding which topic. It's a beautiful book. Would recommend it to the whole world. Quote which this person's translating to English, so I take it that it was translated out of English and now we're getting it back. Uh, secret of, the secret of life is to find the right spotlight. Some people love the lights of a Broadway stage. Some people love the light of their desk lamp. Amen to that. All right, people, I hope there was something useful in that. I always appreciate your questions. They are gifts to me. Uh, excited about this year. I want to get this book out and done and then move on to bigger better th not bigger better things i don't know what i'm saying there but like can i keep keep building something uh and I've, got, I've got some baby plans for sweathead that'll come to life and i want to first first part of that's really going to be about getting these interviews that i've done nearly 200 now transcribed up online in a way that you're able to read and access in different formats maybe there is there's a book or two that can fall out of the transcripts or transcriptions once we've done them uh so i'm excited about that and um, stay tuned for dates for the Strategy Supersize Omega class with Julian Cole. I think he's flying to Australia, maybe right now. Uh, from Australia. What am I saying? From Australia. And yeah, his news is in public. He's moving back to New York from LA. So it's going to be nice to have him uh, in, the, in the same city. I keep trying to convince everyone to move to the Upper West Side because I know like two people there and I've been there for nine years. You know how lonely I am? And everyone's like, nah, Brooklyn. 
Apparently the kids don't like going above 14th Street anyway. Come on. Come uptown. All right, take care, kids. Peace.